0: Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of eating disorders, drug abuse, child abuse, attempted suicide, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. 24-year-old Kristen Rossum had walked into the San Diego medical examiner's office every day for nearly three years. She was known as the young, pretty, blonde toxicologist, exceedingly good at her job, even if she was also sleeping with her boss. But this particular Sunday morning was not a normal workday for Kristen. She was in the office for much more sinister reasons. She made her way quickly to the room where they stored all the drugs collected from death scenes throughout the county. Oxycodone, clonazepam, methamphetamine, cocaine. It was a candy store of narcotics. For a former addict like Kristen, it was always a temptation. It was like the drugs were just there for the taking. But despite that, she never gave in. Until now. She looked over the shelves. It wasn't long before she found what she was looking for, fentanyl, an opioid 50 times more potent than morphine and extremely lethal if taken in high dosages. But despite her past addiction, the fentanyl wasn't for her, it was for her husband. He just didn't know it yet. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode on Kristen Rossum a bright young woman who strove for perfection as a teenager until a ballet injury led her into drug use. We'll cover her addiction and how she got clean with the help of Greg DeVillers, a man she married but then came to resent so much she poisoned him. Next week, we'll look into how Kristen murdered her husband. Then we'll detail her elaborate attempts to make the crime look like a suicide before her unmasking as a murderer and the sensational trial that followed.
1: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be.
0: On October 25, 1976, in Memphis, Tennessee, Constance and Ralph Rossum welcomed a beautiful baby girl they named Kristen. Like most parents, they wanted only the best for their child. They were intelligent, respected, successful academics, and they dreamed of a similar future for their daughter. But the Rossums also had their own flaws that would plague Kristen's childhood. Mainly, the couple was acutely aware of their picture-perfect image, sometimes to a detrimental degree. As they tried to instill grit and determination in Kristen, they telegraphed another, more damaging message—that appearance was more important than anything. When she was four, Kristen's mother paid for her to take professional headshots These sessions entailed a full face of makeup, professionally styled hair, and clothes designed for a mini-adult. By the time she did her next round of photos at age six, Kristen was a pro. She could switch up her expression to capture whatever mood the photographer asked for, whether it was silly or serious. She knew exactly what she was doing, and the camera loved her. Her photogenic appearance even landed her a few modeling gigs for local and national retailers. Her parents were extremely proud, and Kristen loved getting their approval. For the rest of her childhood, she strove to impress them. While plenty of kids seek validation from their parents, Kristen's whole sense of self was centered around Constance and Ralph. Due to their various academic postings, the family moved around often, so instead of developing relationships with her peers, Kristen relied on her parents for approval. When they moved to Maryland, six-year-old Kristen found another way to impress her parents. She would study ballet. And like everything young Kristen put her mind to, she was exceptional. She practiced for the next three years. Then, in the summer of 1985, the family moved to Claremont, California, where they were finally able to settle down. By now, nine-year-old Kristen was dedicated to ballet, but that didn't mean she was allowed to neglect her schoolwork. After all, in a home with two academics for parents, nothing less than straight A's would fly. That external pressure to perform quickly became internalized. As hard as her parents were on her, Kristen was even harder on herself. In her diary, she wrote, It was always obvious to me that I was expected to do well in school. I wanted to make my parents proud of me. I wanted to be the best in everything I did. I wanted to be perfect. Before we continue with Kristen's psychology, I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to Dr. Daniel Madigan, there are two types of perfectionism. Perfectionistic strivings, which include positive aspects like high personal standards, and perfectionist concerns, which focus on negative things like mistakes. Kristen's perfectionism fell into the second category— She was consumed by all the things that she believed were wrong with her, from her body to her dance technique. And with that intense self-scrutiny often comes poor coping mechanisms. As Kristen's dedication to ballet grew, so did her mental health issues. In 1991, 15-year-old Kristen was offered a spot in the Boston Ballet's prestigious summer program, but among other extremely talented ballerinas, the pressure only mounted. For one, she couldn't stand how she looked. She was five foot two and never weighed more than 110 pounds. But when she looked in a mirror, she saw only flaws, thighs that were too flabby, a stomach that wasn't flat enough. She compared herself to the other dancers and coveted their appearance. In a desperate move, she took laxatives to purge after meals and diet pills to keep full during the day, all in an attempt to achieve the impossible ideal she set for herself. Kristen likely thought these extreme measures were required if she wanted to perform at a high level. However, according to Dr. Madigan's research, perfectionism may actually increase the likelihood of injury in young athletes. It's a personality trait that increases stress while also pushing people to overtrain. Kristen pushed herself to her limit every day, both physically and mentally. It was only a matter of time before something happened. In the fall of 1991, Kristen enrolled in an all-girls boarding school in Richmond, Virginia, which she sought out for its dance program. One night during a performance, Kristen leapt into another dancer's arms, expecting to be lifted, but she fell to the floor. She'd been dropped right onto her leg. She was in agony. A doctor delivered the bad news. She'd torn several ligaments and would have to wear an ankle cast for two months. It wasn't the end of the world. At least, it wouldn't have been if she'd properly rested and healed. But Kristen didn't want to wait. She was determined to get herself back out there. So as soon as she could stand up, she returned to practice. Unsurprisingly, she hurt her leg again, this time due to a stress fracture. And no matter what she did, this second injury wouldn't heal. She was out for so long, she no longer had the calluses on her toes that she needed to do point. It was all too much, too painful, too frustrating. And for the first time in Kristen's life, she quit. Kristen returned to Claremont for her junior year of high school in 1992. But without ballet, she was a different person, sad and withdrawn and lacking the motivation she had possessed her whole life. And now, she suddenly had a lot of free time to fill. One night, she went to a party with some friends. There, someone offered her a line of white powder. Kristen had smoked pot before, but she never really saw the appeal. She certainly hadn't experimented with hard drugs, but she was feeling lost, and something to loosen her up was just what she needed. So she inhaled the powder and then came a state of euphoria that she had never felt before. The drug was methamphetamine, otherwise known as crystal meth or speed. Kristen was hooked. For the first time in her life, she felt satisfied with herself. No, not just satisfied, happy. As her use of meth increased, Kristen lost her ability to focus on anything else. She stopped spending time with her friends, she lost weight, and her grades plummeted. Her parents worried something was wrong, but chalked it up to typical teenage angst. Even in their worst nightmares, neither of them ever imagined that their darling, perfect daughter was addicted to a street drug. But then her parents went on a cruise, leaving Kristen at home alone. When they returned, they found out she'd thrown a party. Credit cards, personal checks, and a video camera were all missing. And even more concerning, Constance found a bag of white powder in the mailbox. 16-year-old Kristen claimed she had no idea where the bag came from, but her parents were starting to catch on. For the first time, they suspected she was using drugs. By that point, Kristen was too far gone to just stop. She needed meth. It was the only thing that made her feel like herself. Still, she didn't want to lose her parents' approval, so she did her best to hide her drug use. But that charade came to an end on March 30th, 1993. As Kristen tried to leave the house that night, her parents demanded to search her backpack. Inside, her dad found her drug stash. It was the moment that changed everything. Up next, Kristen begins a roller coaster ride with drugs. Hi, listeners! To celebrate our favorite month, ParCast Network is releasing a slate of new shows leaning into all things spooky and spine-tingling. And now we're bringing you an original series called Superstitions, featuring the origins and impacts of our most unusual beliefs, and the stories of those who dare to defy them. Every week on Superstitions, hear a new drama that illustrates the eeriness and unlocks the mysteries of humanity's strangest codes of conduct, like holding your breath while passing a cemetery so you don't wake the dead and make them jealous, or carrying the foot of an animal known to have an evil eye, or using iron to keep away the devil. They may seem mystical or even completely illogical, but one thing is certain you ignore them at your own risk. You can find and follow Superstitions free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. To hear more ParCast shows, search ParCast Network in Spotify's search bar and find a growing slate of spooky October programming to enjoy.
1: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some...
0: By early 1993, the life of 16-year-old Kristen Rossum had taken a terrible detour. Once a driven ballet dancer, she gave up her passion after an injury. Now she'd become addicted to methamphetamines, but so far she'd been able to hide it from her parents, Constance and Ralph. Their approval still meant everything. But on March 30th, her parents asked to search her backpack Her father found drugs. He couldn't believe she lied to him, under his own roof, no less. Kristen later told the police that her father had either hit her repeatedly or grabbed her on her arm, hard enough to leave a bruise. At some point, Constance slapped Kristen across the face and called her worthless. Both her parents denied Kristen's version of events. According to Kristen, she locked herself in the bathroom, then took a razor blade and made cuts across her wrists. Through the door, she cried, you'd be better off without me. Realizing the gravity of the situation, her parents coaxed Kristen out of the bathroom, Luckily, the cuts she had made on her wrists weren't deep enough to require a hospital trip. They'd clean her up themselves and keep the incident behind closed doors. But a few days later, two of Kristen's friends reported to a school counselor that she was acting strangely. They called in Officer Larry Horowitz, who interviewed the family and determined there was no evidence of child abuse. After that, Kristen appeared to be back on the straight and narrow for the rest of her junior year. But then, as a senior, the warning signs returned. She was picking at sores on her hands, losing weight, and doing poorly in school. Her parents didn't know what to do. On January 14, 1994, it all came to a head. 17-year-old Kristen returned home from school acting erratically, suspicious, her mom discovered a glass pipe hidden in Kristen's shirt. She was irate. She was so furious, she called the cops and reported her own daughter. Maybe a brush with the law would be enough to fix things. Officer Horowitz was assigned the case because he already knew the family. When he arrived on the scene, he arrested Kristen for possession of paraphernalia and being under the influence of a controlled substance. But as he led Kristen out of the house, Horowitz wondered if he had judged the Rossums correctly. What type of parent called the police on their own child? Kristen's arrest had no real consequences. As a first-time, nonviolent offender, she was released back to her parents that afternoon. But it did prompt a change. Her parents decided a change of scenery would do her good. She graduated early from Claremont High School and enrolled that summer at the University of Redlands. The school was just 30 miles away, so she could still live at home under her parents' watchful eye. At first, the new setting seemed to help. In fact, she appeared to be doing so well that her parents agreed to let her live on campus for fall semester. But as soon as Kristen experienced the freedom of living on her own, she slipped. At a party, a fellow student offered her meth. It was too enticing and addiction had her in its grip. She took a hit and once she started, she couldn't stop. By the middle of the semester, she was using every day. That December, Constance Rossum arrived at Kristen's dorm to pick her daughter up for vacation. She was looking forward to having her home again. But when Constance got to her daughter's room, Kristen was gone. There was no sign of where she might be, and no note telling them that she was okay. It was enough to make any parent's heart beat faster. Then, as Constance tried to figure out where her daughter was, The phone in the dorm room rang. It was Kristen's old drug dealer on the line. Constance's stomach sank as she realized that her daughter was back on drugs. Meanwhile, Kristen was staying with a friend in Newport. It wasn't until a week later on Christmas Eve that the friend called Kristen's parents to let them know their daughter was all right. Then, on Christmas Day, Kristen called her boyfriend, Teddy Maya. She asked him to meet her at a motel in Redlands. When he got there, Teddy was shocked at the sight of her. His blonde, beautiful girlfriend looked awful, with sores on her hands and face from the meth. He was worried about her, but he stayed the night, hoping the next day he'd be able to bring her home. But Kristen had no intention of going home. Instead, she stole the money out of Teddy's wallet while he was in the shower and ran away again. She took the cash and bought a one-way Amtrak ticket to San Diego. She got off in Chula Vista, the last town before Mexico, and rented the cheapest motel room she could find. But once she got there, she was too jittery to stay put. So she decided to take a trip to Tijuana, just over the border. Still high on meth, Kristen made her way across the pedestrian border crossing. As she moved with the crowd, she accidentally bumped into a man and dropped her jacket. When they both leaned down to pick it up, they laughed and introduced themselves. A meet-cute, just like in the movies. His name was Greg DeVillers. He was 21, clean living, and from that night on, smitten with Kristen. Greg was out for a boys' night with his brothers and friend, but he invited Kristen along with them. She was more than happy for the company and didn't leave his side the entire night. As they hung out in Tijuana, Greg learned Kristen's story. A strict non-drug user, he painted a version of the world where she, too, could live a clean life, just as he did. It was something she liked the sound of. So when Greg invited Kristen back to San Diego at the end of the night, she said yes. They went to his apartment and had sex, a move that was apparently out of character for Greg, who didn't have much experience with girls. By the end of the week, Kristen unofficially moved in, and Greg was telling her he loved her. She told him she loved him too, but whether or not she meant it was less cut and dried. As she later recalled, It's hard not to say, I love you, too, when someone says, I love you. After living with Greg for a few weeks, 18-year-old Kristen finally called her parents. She explained that she was in San Diego and that her new friend, Greg, was helping her get off drugs. She was working, too. She had a job at California Pizza Kitchen, and she was teaching ballet classes on the side. Her parents were relieved to hear from her, and they came to San Diego to see her and meet Greg. Both Constance and Ralph liked him from the start. He seemed like a kind, genuine person. And more than that, they were thrilled that he was helping Kristen stay off drugs. But as happy as the Rossums were with the situation, tensions were rising in Greg's apartment. He was enamored with Kristen, but his roommates were less so. Greg seemed to think that she was on the straight and narrow for good, but his friend and brother weren't convinced. There were several reasons for this. Kristen's exaggerated mood swings, how she'd check out from conversations, and a string of items that went missing from their home. Though she always foisted the blame onto Greg's roommates when things disappeared. On top of all that, they were bugged that she wasn't paying rent. Greg's roommates turned out to be right. Kristen was secretly using again. Even though she was no longer a driven ballet dancer, Kristen was still a perfectionist at heart. Ironically, it was this personality trait that may have made drugs so hard to kick. As researcher Ali Baramnejad explains, perfectionism creates a constant source of stress and leads to a sense of frustration and failure. And in order to cope with the uncompromising and high standards that perfectionists set for themselves, they often turned to poor coping mechanisms, including drugs. For Kristen, meth was the only way to ease the pressure and stress she created for herself every single day. But her drug habits soon started to affect her work. At California Pizza Kitchen, she made a ton of billing mistakes. She'd overcharge tables and mix up checks. It's not clear whether she was stealing from customers on purpose for drug money, or if the drugs were just affecting her so much she couldn't do her job. Either way, her managers fired her. When he found out she had lost her job and was using again, Greg was disappointed and angry. But he'd grown up with a chronically ill mom. And from a young age, he'd assumed the position of protector. Now, he felt the same way about his girlfriend. He was completely devoted to helping her get better. He wasn't going to leave her. And as for Kristen, she saw Greg as her savior, someone to pull her out of the hole she had dug for herself. She was willing to follow him anywhere. Greg decided the best choice was for both of them to go back to school. He had taken a leave of absence the year before due to poor grades, but he re-enrolled at the University of California, San Diego, in the fall of 1995. Kristen, on the other hand, applied for the state school, San Diego State University. Back in school, Kristen thrived. She impressed her professors and got high marks in all her classes, even difficult ones like chemistry. She was smart and disciplined, and when she wasn't at the mercy of meth, she excelled at just about everything. A year later, on October 25, 1996, Kristen's 20th birthday, Greg took her to a restaurant about 45 minutes south of Tijuana. After they finished their meals, he asked her to marry him. It had been less than two years since their first meeting, but Kristen felt indebted to Greg. She may have relapsed early on, but he had helped her get her life straightened out again. She owed everything to him. She said yes. But the couple had a long engagement. They knew Kristen's parents preferred them to marry after graduation, so over the next two years, they both attended classes and found new jobs. Kristen became a student worker in the county medical examiner's office in 1997. She took to the work quickly, impressing her co workers as she'd done with her professors. She was efficient, precise, and a wonderful presence in the office. From the outside, it seemed that Kristen and Greg were doing well for themselves, and that they were happy with each other. But Kristen worried about marrying Greg. She'd noticed that as time passed from her last relapse, and she sought out more independence, Greg didn't like it. According to journalist Caitlin Rother, Greg displayed the typical behavior of someone involved with an addict. He tried to control and protect Kristen and their relationship. Kristen loved Greg, but it didn't mean she was in love with Greg. In the months leading up to their wedding, she told her mom she was having doubts. Marrying him now felt like an obligation, not the natural next step. Her mother said cold feet were normal, but she gently encouraged Kristen to go through with the marriage. And it turned out Kristen's strong desire to please her parents never went away. On a beautiful summer's day in June 1999, 22-year-old Kristen looped her arm through her father's and they walked down the aisle. Her dress trailed behind her and she could feel everyone's eyes on her. She looked beautiful with her blonde hair done up under her veil. But on the inside, she was panicking. With every step she took closer to her soon-to-be husband, she felt like turning and running in the other direction. She had told her mom she would honor her commitment to Greg, but maybe it was the wrong decision. Her heart pounded as her father kissed her cheek, and she took her place next to Greg at the altar. And then, the next thing she knew, the minister was asking her if she took Greg to be her husband. Kristen pushed aside all her reservations and told herself her mom was right. It was probably just cold feet. So she smiled at Greg and said, I do. For the next six months, Kristen was happy enough with her decision. Besides, she was focused on getting high marks for her final semester at SDSU. She ended up graduating summa cum laude, the highest possible honors, with a distinction in chemistry. After school ended, Kristen had nothing to distract her from her new marriage. There were good parts of it, like when they rented her favorite movie, American Beauty, and watched together on the couch. But there were also less than great aspects. About a month after graduating, she confessed to her mom that Greg was getting more clingy and controlling, and that she felt like a bird in a cage. But then, Kristen got a new distraction. The medical examiner's office, where she had worked as a student, offered her a position as a permanent toxicologist. It was her dream job. On March 17, 2000, 23-year-old Kristen walked into the office for her first day of work. There was only one desk open, and so she took a seat there, It was situated right in front of the lab manager's office. That wouldn't have been a problem, except the door was made of glass, so Kristen could see right through it. Sitting inside was 30-year-old Michael Robertson, the new lab manager, and he just happened to be an incredibly attractive Australian man. He looked up and smiled at the newest member of his team. And Kristen, sitting at her new desk, couldn't keep her eyes off of him. Up next, Kristen and Michael begin an affair that turns deadly. Now, back to the story. By early 2000, less than six months after her wedding, 23-year-old Kristen regretted getting married. But her marital problems were pushed aside when she started her dream job at the county medical examiner's office. On her first day there, she met her new boss, 30-year-old Michael Robertson. Kristen was immediately attracted to Michael. And as soon as he saw the pretty young blonde sitting outside his office, he was taken too. For a few weeks, he and Kristen did nothing more than occasionally make eyes at each other. Then one day, the two grabbed a sandwich together for lunch. They said they just wanted to get to know each other. But both were unhappy in their marriages, and it was apparent from the start that there was a strong connection between the two of them. Kristen wrote in her diary, gushing about how Michael just got her. It wasn't long before things escalated. They traded personal emails and spent more time together both in and out of the office. And then in May of 2000, they attended the California Association of Toxicologists conference together in Los Angeles. After dinner with a group of their peers, the two slipped away on their own. It was the first night they were both away from their respective spouses, and likely the first time they slept together. After that, Kristen started voicing her regrets about marrying Greg to other people besides her mom. She emailed her younger brother, Brent, asking for advice. She told him she only married Greg because her parents had convinced her, and she didn't want to leave him out of fear she'd disappoint them again. But Kristen's fears didn't stop her from pursuing her relationship with Michael. Things were getting hot and heavy now. The two wrote to each other constantly over the summer, sending notes and emails filled with romantic proclamations and plans for the future. Their intentions were serious and so was their physical relationship. They would sneak out together during lunch and then return to eat their food at their own desks, leaving their coworkers to speculate about what was actually going on between the two. Many of their colleagues came to resent the blatant flouting of the rules. Michael was Kristen's superior, and not only were they clearly engaged in a sexual relationship, Michael showed preferential treatment to Kristen and her projects. So their coworkers reported them. But when the lab administrator confronted him about the rumored affair, Michael denied it. After that, he and Kristen tried to be a little more discreet, but not much. When they would leave for lunch, they no longer took the same car, but they would both leave and return within minutes of each other. They weren't fooling anyone. The one person in Kristen's life unaware of her affair was Greg. But one night in the summer of 2000, he discovered a love letter from Michael. Greg was understandably furious. He couldn't believe Kristen was cheating on him. She tried to cover her tracks by saying that there was only an emotional relationship between them, not a physical one, but Greg didn't buy it. He demanded Kristen give him Michael's phone number. She tried to defuse the situation, but he was adamant. Eventually, she gave in. Michael was sitting in bed next to his wife when the phone rang. He answered it, only for Greg's deep voice to bellow through the phone, stay the hell away from my wife. Michael scrambled out of bed, hoping his wife hadn't heard the other man's voice. But it was too late. She'd heard it all. In September of 2000, Michael and his wife unofficially separated. Meanwhile, Kristen admitted to Greg the full extent of her affair, He spent a whole weekend in his room refusing to talk to her. But when he emerged, he asked her to stay and work things out. Kristen didn't know what to say except to agree. But she had no intention of giving up her lover. Needless to say, the idea of juggling her affair and her marriage was stressful. She needed something to help cope, something to take the edge off. Kristen got into her car and made the half-hour drive from San Diego to Tijuana. Her hands trembled on the steering wheel. She knew she was making a bad decision, but she couldn't help it. Now that she had the idea in her head, she couldn't shake it. She would just pick up something to help with her nerves. As long as it wasn't meth, she would be fine. When she got to the city, it was even easier to get drugs than she remembered. She spoke to a Mexican doctor who wrote her prescriptions for a muscle relaxant and a diet pill. Both varieties she never would have been able to get her hands on in the States. As soon as she left, Kristen popped a couple of pills. Immediately, she felt better, more relaxed, more able to handle all the lies. Kristen's personal life wasn't her only source of stress. At the start of October, she was scheduled to present her first paper at a conference in Milwaukee. It was for the Society of Forensic Toxicologists, and Michael was going as well. They left together for the conference on September 30th, two days early. Rather than stay in the two separate rooms booked for them, they got one together at the in-town hotel, tucked away from the other conference-goers. Over the week, Kristen attended lectures during the day. Then, at night, she shared romantic evenings with Michael. But when it came time to give her talk at the end of the week, Kristen was incredibly anxious. Her nerves were getting the better of her, and she stumbled through the presentation. By the time she got home, she just wanted to relax. But instead, she was greeted by a furious Greg. He had found some of the pills she had bought in Tijuana. It sent him over the edge. She tried to defend herself. And when that didn't work, she blamed Greg for her anxiety. She told him that the only reason she was taking anything was because their relationship was stressing her out so much. Throughout the rest of October, her resentment towards her husband only grew. In her eyes, he was controlling and possessive. He wanted her all to himself. He didn't like her spending time with friends and he didn't trust her to make her own decisions. Meanwhile, she had a smart, handsome, devoted boyfriend who loved her just the way she was and who didn't know about her past. With him, she could have a fresh start with someone who didn't treat her like she might relapse at any moment. But even though Kristen knew she wanted to be with Michael, she had anxiety about breaking up with Greg. She knew he was still a good man, and he was desperately trying to save their marriage. On October 25th, 2000, Kristen's birthday, Greg came home with two dozen red roses, 24 stems for her 24 years. It was a sweet gesture, and Kristen tried to be happy about it. But two days later, she relapsed. It was the first time she'd done meth in five years. According to psychiatry professor Rajita Sina, Stress increases vulnerability to addiction and relapse. That's partly because abstinence can make serious drug users feel like everything is worse. For Kristen, she likely felt more stressed, irritable, and anxious off of meth than she would if she were using. And so to calm her mind, she self-medicated. Over the next week, Kristen's behavior grew erratic. Both Greg and Michael noticed it, But Michael, unaware of Kristen's past with drugs, didn't know what was going on. On Thursday, November 2nd, Kristen asked Greg to lunch. They met at an Italian deli in Little Italy. It's not clear what was said, but it was enough for Greg to call into work to say he needed the rest of the afternoon off for a family problem. Based on what Kristen would say later, Greg gave her an ultimatum. Greg knew about her drug use and her affair, and he wanted an end to both. He warned Kristen that if she didn't stop her behavior, he would be forced to tell her superiors at work that she was on drugs. It was for her own good. Of course, Kristen didn't take kindly to the ultimatum. After that lunch, She went cold turkey, just in case Greg actually followed through on his threat. She wanted to at least clear her system before he did anything. But that night and through the rest of the weekend, Kristen grew more and more agitated. She had worked so hard for what she had. She didn't want to just give it all up. How dare Greg threaten her in that way? The next night, Friday, November 3rd, Kristen and Greg met her parents for dinner in downtown San Diego. It was a pleasant enough evening, but even then, Kristen was trying to decide what to do about Greg. He was about to ruin everything—her job, her affair, and, most importantly, her reputation. So over the next three days, something unusual happened. Between the night of Friday, November 3rd, and the night of Monday, November 6th, nobody saw Greg DeVillers except his wife. During that time, we have only Kristen's version of events. She says that she and Greg continued to argue over the weekend about her drug use and affair. She finally told him she wanted a separation, but he said he couldn't live without her. And then, according to Kristen, Greg, a man who refused to use so much as over-the-counter cold medicine, took serious doses of clonazepam and oxycodone to help him sleep. Then, he slept from around 9 PM on Sunday night all the way through Monday. That day, November 6th, Kristen was in and out of the apartment, checking on Greg, meeting up with Michael and running errands. When she came home that evening, Greg was still sleeping soundly. So she took a bath. It was only when she was about to get into bed with him that she realized his body was cold. So she called 911 immediately. But in reality, Kristen had drugged her husband. And now, it was time for the cover-up. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week to discuss how Kristen Rossum poisoned her husband during those three missing days. Then we'll cover how she nearly evaded justice by staging the murder as a suicide. For more information on Kristen Rossum, amongst the many sources we used, we found Poisoned Love by Caitlin Rother, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Mike Ramos, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Remember to follow Superstitions for new episodes featuring our most unusual beliefs. Are they side effects of ancient folklore or truly the masters of our fates? Look closely and examine the writing on the wall. Superstitions airs every Wednesday, free on Spotify.